0: I just came across a, <clears throat> a note in my Bible that I thought would be interesting just to let you know. Um, I didn't know this. I know that uh, Paul struggled with Corinthi- uh, Corinth because, uh, uh, because of their immorality. But it said, um, so widely known did the immorality of Corinth become that the Greek word to Corinthianize came to me to practice sexual immorality. So I can see the struggle that Paul had uh, with the church in Corinth and his concern for Corinth. Anyways, we're reading from 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do not get a crown that will not last but they do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Thanks be to the word of God. Please be seated.
1: I'm sure that many of you are aware by now that I am somewhat addicted to athletic endeavors. At my age, of course, I'm limited. So I do my gym time, and my wife is looking at me, but you didn't do it this week. (laughs) I try to do my gym time, and I love golfing. I golf in a men's league, on Thursday nights, and I always try to get myself in a foursome where I don't know the other men. So when I sign up, I always try to sign up with strangers. And when you're with a group of men golfing and they don't know you, you only get through one or two holes when they ask you, what do you do? And I don't hesitate to say, I'm a preacher and a minister of the gospel after a sometimes prolonged silence, they will begin to tell me their famous religious jokes or their famous pastor joke. And some of them I've remembered and some of them I've written down and I came across this one. Saint Peter was having a day off of his duties at the gates of heaven and Jesus is standing in for him. While booking the in while booking in the new arrivals, Jesus noticed an old man in the line who seemed familiar. When this man gets to the front of the line, Jesus asks him, "What's your name?" He says, "Joseph." Which makes Jesus just think a little bit. And he says, "Well, what is your occupation?" The reply, "Carpenter." Well, Jesus' heart is beating a little faster now. And he says, did you have a little boy? Yes, came the reply. Did he have holes in his wrists and ankles, asked Jesus? Yes, comes the reply. Jesus looks at the older man in front of him, and with a smile on his face, remembering that his earthly father was a carpenter, he says, daddy, daddy? The old man looked puzzled for a moment and said, Pinocchio? (laughs) Yes, when you're golfing with men, they often, as a preacher, find things to tell you about their peculiarity about faith and religion. Over the last number of weeks, where during my preaching time, uh, I can remember Ken's messages of Pentecost a couple of months ago. And I've come to believe in my heart that the North American church, the 21st century North American church, needs a spiritual awakening. That we need to be awakened in North America, much like the rest of the underdeveloped world is being awakened by God's presence. Ken inspired me in his vision about Pentecost along with where God has led our elders to paint a word picture of what they believe God has said to them and led them in their thinking. They believe with all their heart that this word picture is what God wants to see us become and live. Three words, four, I guess five words in that picture have been on my heart ever since Ken's message. Those words are the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit. And I ask myself, what does it really mean to be a church of the Pentecost, or more directly, a people of the Pentecost? I'm not suggesting Pentecostalism. I'm talking about church of the Pentecost. What does it really mean, and what should... Visitors, what should visitors see and feel when they come into the midst of a church of the Pentecost? You may recall I opened, I guess I better get my thing out here, make it work. You will remember I opened this mini-series entitled uh, uh, The Church of Pentecost Suggesting a Spirit-Filled Church is an Insightful Church. A Spirit-Filled Church is an Insightful Church. Uh, I think it'll go now. No, it won't go. And James doesn't have my notes. He's given me instructions. He thinks he's going to get it go. Oh, there we go. Oh, you change it for me. All right. You'll have to watch some key words there, brother. A spiritual church is an insightful church. We recall the story of John and Peter after Pentecost, after they were filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit, they began to see their world and their community with a new set of eyes, a very familiar world to them, but they were looking at it in a new, with new insight and renewed insight, but it also they had a sense of expectancy that something was going to happen. They were an expectant people. Their lives uh, began to participate with God in his healing hand, which ignited joy in them and joy all around them. And they became amazed at what God was doing in their midst and how he was using them. And both these disciples, along with the rest of the disciples and those of Pentecost, became, became a, a, a shining light in their communities. And then secondly, a church of the Pentecost Did you do that or did I do that? He's good. The Church of the Pentecost is a determined church. One can visualize the concept of determination by the radical transformation of the Apostle Paul following his road to Damascus experience. His new spirit-filled life was consumed with a sense of total determination best expressed in his illustrations of Christians and running the race that we read this morning. Paul began to demonstrate in his teachings a determination to be submissive. To be submissive to where God was taking him, leading him, and asking him to do. A determined church and a determined people are people who are willing to submit to Christ in unique ways, out of our comfort zones out of areas where we normally are, but also a determination to sacrifice, to be willing to sacrifice some of our wants and wishes and replacing it with what Jesus and his spirit wants of us. Sacrifice of our heart, sacrifice of our time, sacrifice of our ambitions, and a determined church A determined people are a people who are willing to humbly submit themselves to what it's all about. It's not about me, it's not about Pastor Ken, it's not about Pastor Zig, it's not about our church leaders, it's about Jesus. And we need to be able to see ourselves in that light. I read an interesting example of these two characteristics in a story told of Bill Bright. Bill Wright was the executive director, president of Campus Crusade for Christ. Prior to his passing, he visited England and was staying in a hotel overlooking the streets of London. Along with him were three local leaders, and Bill asked each of them to look out the window and tell, them, tell him what they saw. The first gentleman looked out and said he saw a couple of ladies pushing strollers with little ones and the bright smile on their faces. The second looked out and was fascinated with a group of young people laughing and enjoying time together. While the third was amazed at the number of seniors strolling down the street looking into shop windows. Finally, Brother Bright went and looked out the window for a significant amount of time, and eventually he was asked what he saw. Bright turned and looked at his friends with a small tear running running down his cheek, and said, I see hundreds of souls that might be lost in darkness for eternity. I am determined to not lose a moment in sharing Jesus with those crowds of lost souls. It's all perspective. In that illustration, I saw a man of the Pentecost who saw his world through spirit-filled transform eyesight and determined to use to determine to be used by God to reach the lost our elders have been given a word picture of what God wishes the church to become my deepest desire is to bring into light in my life and bring it into the life of this church, what it means and looks like to be a church and people of the Pentecost. God wants to identify us in that fashion. What does that mean? Well, thirdly, it takes me to this. Oh, I'm going the wrong way here. I'm gonna start at the beginning again, is that okay? No, no. Peter said, no, 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 don't do it. I'm never good with these note things. This morning I want to look at the third characteristic of a church of the Pentecost. A church of the Pentecost is a passionate church. The word passion in the New Testament is primarily associated with physical lust, as it was in the church of Corinth. But Webster adds an an extension to that thought by defining passion in this way. A strong feeling of enthusiasm or excitement for something or about doing something. A strong feeling such as anger, joy, uh, fear that causes us to act in a dangerous fashion. I turned our, chose our reading this morning again to talk about Paul and his illustration of the Christian running a race. When I think of passion, I often think of extreme endeavors and behaviors. Many of you know that my son runs 40 and 50 kilometer mountain runs. He just completed this last weekend running Idaho Peak in BC, which was 45 kilometers up the mountain. He informed his mom and I that he competed the race in just over five hours and became first in his age group. And whenever I see his video or his, his videos or his texts that he sends me, I am amazed at the amount of passion it takes in his life to accomplish what he accomplished. Let me show you some faces. Of passion. 100-mile, 100-yard dash. How many years of passion did these young men have in their life to complete that race? Or, what about this young lady in her 20s? Adopted 21 African orphans. If you want to know her story, she actually was married not too long ago and she is now pregnant with their very first child. Or, what about this teacher? You remember that teacher that stood out for you in school? That seemed to be more connected to you than any of the rest of the teachers? Or, if you want to talk to Etchell for a little bit about cooking, if you ask Etchell about cooking, be ready for two hours of passion, because he will give it to you. Or, you all can remember that nurse that you visited in the hospital that stood up above the rest? or while you were being looked after, stood up above the rest, and you can't forget this man, king, for his passion, and what about this one? There's nothing more passionate than a mom and her baby. All these are faces of passion. Passion is unique and it is important. A church of the Pentecost is a passionate church. I go good left-handed. Three things I want us to think about this morning about passion. Like life has value only when it has something of value as its object. Life has value when you only have something valuable. We do have value. I know most of you are not aware, but or may be aware, that our leaders had a retreat a few weeks ago. Together we spent Saturday discussing what we believed God's design and intent for our church was. I wish each one could have been there to experience the ember of passion that was evident as each one spoke of God's involvement in their life and how they wanted to see God's involvement in our church. I've come to realize this. Serving God is always about serving others. One leader put it this way. Too often we allow ourselves to rest in the comfort of the grace of God that provides us with salvation, and yet never allow it to touch others around us. Or, most often, because of the kind of worship we we do answers the emotional need of some people, it becomes very easy to fall into the addictive trap of our Sunday morning experience and walk out of here emotionally stirred, but never changed. When I look at the life of Paul, I see a person of passion, which should cause us to investigate the spiritual passion in our lives. Three things about passion that I've thought about all week. The first is passion involves imagination. Passion involves imagination. I suspect we all have imaginary minds. Certainly we must, as we have been created in God's own image, and God's imagination is best demonstrated in his creation of the world that we really exist in. Imagine, imagination is a spark that eventually will turn into a raging fire when imagination and passion are connected. Like most of you, I have imagination. I remember some things, like when I was 10 years old, and I lived on an isolated Air Force base. And because we were so isolated, the Air Force base, or the leadership, used to bring in people from outside the Air Force base, sometimes from several, several tens of miles, to come in and, and create things for the children and the teenagers. And when I was about 10 years old, they had brought in someone to teach the children and the teenagers to play baseball. And so he came up to me, this coach, and he said, uh, would you like to consider playing baseball with the, with the boys? And I said, sure, I can do that. And so he had a couple of practices with me and the other kids, we were 10, 11 years old at that time. And he said, Gary, uh, I'd like to make you a back catcher. He because you seem to have somewhat of a strong arm. And, and so, would you consider being our back catcher? I said, sure, but you're gonna to have to teach me, and he did. And so, for num- a number of years, I was the back on our Air Force Base team, and it was, it was fun, but then I turned 13, and I recognized something when I got to 13, that girls were rather important. And so, I had my first girlfriend, name was Joni. And I recall when I was 13, 13, almost 14, playing in a semifinal game against the Navy base. And we were in the semifinals, and we put our best pitcher on the mound. And he was a fastball pitcher. That's all he could throw. He didn't know anything else. Even though I'd give him a sign for a curve, he'd throw a fastball. I'd give him a sign for a changeup, he'd throw a fastball. Well, I want to tell you, catching a fastball pitcher gets boring because it's always the same, bang, bang. And I was getting boring, and I th- started to lose my focus, and I thought, I wonder if Joni's watching her man. So I started looking around in the crowd, and I caught a pitch of his coming out of his hand, and it was going to be quite a ways to my right. And I, didn't know, I knew I didn't have time now to throw my body out there to block it, so I threw my hand out and caught the ball barehanded. Even at 13, a fastball pitcher's pitch is somewhere around 70 miles per hour. That, when I caught that ball, my fingernails lifted straight up. You know what a 13-year-old boy does when that happens? He grabs his hand, does a little dance, puts it in his mouth, and cries, Mommy. And that's exactly what I was doing. And so the coach came running over, and he looked at my hand, and he said, Not so bad. Not so bad. I want my mummy. He said, Gary, I said, Well, I haven't got anybody else to put in the game. We've used all our spare players. And there's a couple of innings left. Do you think you could hang in there with me? I'll put some, some ointment on your fingers and I'll put some tape on it. And could you hang in there and just finish these next two innings with me? Okay. And every time I threw the ball after that, back to the pitcher or somewhere else, when it rolled off the tip of my fingers, I could feel that pain going up my arm. You see, when I started baseball 10 years old, I imagined myself being the backcatcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I kept that imagination going till I was 13. And I had not discovered at that age that passion must be evident if we are going to compete and finish our imaginary God dream. I stopped believing or imagining I was going to be a backcatcher for the Los Angeles Rams, Dodgers. It was too painful. Flip forward 30 years. 1978. I became a follower of Christ Jesus. My wife will tell you this, and many who got to know me in those early days, I began to imagine myself as the next Billy Graham. I thought and I dreamt about telling people of the grace and love of God, what he has for us through his resurrection. I have never stopped imagining myself winning people to the cross. What was the difference between my baseball imagination and my evangelical imagination? It can be summed up in one word, passion. Passion. It's passion that takes us over the many obstacles that stand in our way. The obstacles of fear and anxiety and time management and rejection. It was and is passion that drives me onward towards the goal that Christ Jesus has for me. Where does passion like that come from? We see it in the Apostle Paul. We see it in the disciples. We see it in Christ followers in the Bible. We see it in Passion Week by Jesus. Where does that come from? Well, I want to share with you my belief is that it comes from Pentecost. Pentecost. It comes from Pentecost. Passion requires imagination. That's really imagination there. This is imagination. This is imagination of the leaders. It's a word picture. And it's a word picture that God has given them. It's their imagination, it's their God dream. Well, secondly, passion involves belief. Passion involves belief. 17 times in the New New Testament, in the Gospel of John, we find him using the word believe. If you ever read the Gospel of John, you will recognize that John's identification of salvation is always perceived with the word believe or belief. John never uses the noun faith when it comes to salvation. He uses the word believe. A passionate church must believe. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the, same, in the name of God's one and only Son. Passion must have the foundation of belief. Believing is the opposite of doubt. Doubt is the playground of the devil. And when doubt creeps in, the first thing it he extinguishes, is our passion. Jonathan Whitfield said this one day while he was speaking to some miners in England. He asked one man, what do you believe? Well, I believe the same as the church. And what does the church believe? Well, they believe the same as me. Seeing that he was getting nowhere, Whitfield said, And what is it that you, that both you believe? Well, I suppose it's the same thing. As I read that this week and thought about that, I remembered an expression that was shared with me when I was a very young believer. If you don't live it, if you don't live it, you don't believe it. If you don't live it, you don't believe it. There's an old illustration that you may have heard, I think it's been around in the church for a long time, but I love it. It's about a young man who was walking along a narrow path, not paying much attention to where he was going, much like me in my baseball game. Suddenly he slipped over the edge of the cliff. As he fell, he grabbed a branch growing from the side of the cliff. Realizing that he couldn't hang on for long, he called for help. Is anybody up there? Yes, I'm here. Who's that? It's the Lord. Lord, I need help. Do you believe I can help? I do believe, Lord. Good. If you believe, then let go of the branch. What? Yes. If you believe, let go of the branch. There was a long pause. Is anybody else up there? You see, belief is what God gives us through his word. Faith is action steps. Belief is the foundation. Faith is a noun. Belief is a verb. A spirit-filled people are a people with a passionate belief in what God has declared in his word and are passionately active of living it out in their daily lives. Thirdly, passion involves the end of the show. Passion involves investment. Investment begins by believing that you have something that is unique. Matthew 25 verse four says, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called, his ser- who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. We cannot be a body of believers affecting others without understanding the uniqueness that God has given and made you. We are more than just human beings running around on earth. We are Christ-anointed ones with the capacity to change lives through the power and the indwelling of his spirit. Everything we have really belongs to God. He owns us, but meanwhile, as I say, the devil's playground is to convince us we have nothing of value to offer. We have nothing of value to offer is what he would tell us. We are too young, we are too old, we've done our time. Who would listen to us? What if they rejected me? What if I'm called a hypocrite? Well, that's the devil's playground. That's the devil's playground. I want to tell you, God has given you certain tasks and unique opportunities that only you can fulfill. I believe with all my heart that God in his wisdom has assigned each of us tasks to do. And only we can do them. That's his investment in us. He has created you with uniqueness, and he's created you with the ability to do the tasks that he's called you to. And when, he's, when those tasks are completed, I'm convinced when the tasks I have completed that God has asked me to do, and I don't know if I've done them all, but when I have, I believe he's gonna take me home. Because I'm his bride, and the Bible says Jesus longs to be with his bride. Let me see if I can demonstrate with an illustration about an old First Nations folklore, about a teenage Indian boy whose tribe grew up in the prairies of the United States. He was turning from 12 to 13, and he was making that transition from being a teenager to being an adult. And part of that ceremony is that he would go on his very first hunting trip up in the mountains. That was indication that he was now a man in the tribe. And when he went on the mountains, which he had never seen before, his explorative heart wanted to see everything. He'd never seen mountains, he'd never seen things in mountains. And as the hunting party would rest for the day after hunting, he would begin to explore. The story says that one day he was climbing up this mountain, and he, he got to a ridge, and he put his hands on the ridge, and he pulled himself luck over to, to look at the shelf of the ridge, And sure enough, there was a nest there with three eggs. And he said, I wonder what kind of animal that is. And so he took one of those eggs, wrapped it in some clothing, kept it next to his body for the rest of the hunting trip, being very careful not to damage it or not to cause it any harm. And he could not wait to get back to the prairies. And the moment that he did get back, he ran out into the flat prairie ground looking for a prairie chicken nest because it was springtime and he knew the prairie chickens would be laying their eggs. And sure enough, he found one. And he put this egg in that prairie chicken nest and Mama came back from doing her little uh, eating and digging around the nest and she came and sat on the nest. And he watched every day. He crept up there and he watched this this mama and the nest. And sure enough, along, along came the time when mama started getting excited. She was kind of making extra loud noises and her little wings were flapping. And it wasn't long that five little prairie chicks come out from underneath her wings. And he thought, that was a prairie chicken? I went to all that trouble for a prairie chicken? And so he was really disappointed until Mama got up. She was going to kind of bring her prairie chicks together. She looked over her shoulder and there was another egg there. She sat right back down. And he came back. And a few days later, of course, Mama got excited again, and all the little prairie hens are now getting excited with her. And out from underneath her came a baby eaglet. And he watched in fascination as the the mama hen was teaching her chicks different things, how to go about and pick up their food. She would take them to the edge of the gravel road or where there was some gravel in the field, and she'd teach them how to pick up little pieces of gravel to help their digestive system. Well, this eaglet, he's just throwing back boulders. And then the story goes that they were were kind of walking down, and and Mama was teaching the prairie chicken how to fly, and I don't know if you've ever seen prairie chickens try to fly. They get going real fast in their wings, and they get about 10 yards, and then they just kind of do this five-point landing. Well, this eaglet, he was flapping them big wings. He got up about three or four feet, and he thought, oh, man, i better land. So he just rolled in the ground, and dust was flying. And they were walking down the prairie one day, Mama, all the little chicks in a row. And at the end of the line where the eaglet was, he looked up in the sky, and he saw a big bird up there. He ran up to the front of the line, and he said, Mama, what kind of bird is that? And she said, oh, that's an eagle. That's the king of the air. That is the greatest bird that God ever created. And she looked back down at that little eagle and said, now don't you get any ideas in your head. You'll never be like that. Has the devil got you there? You'll never make it. You'll never do it. That's the devil's playground. That's the devil's playground. You are special. You are anointed. You are God's child. You are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. You are redeemed to be something special, each one of you. I've changed our prayer time to the end because I'm gonna, in a few moments, do something I think unique. You see, a Pentecost church is a church that passionately wants to serve others. Serving God is much more than an emotional experience. Serving God is much more than great worship and good music. Serving God is more than reading our Bibles and praying every day. Serving God is more than keeping ourselves unspotted from the culture around us. Serving God is always serving others. I believe with all my heart that God is calling this church and the churches of the 21st century in North America to a new level of walking with him. We have got caught in a kind of an apathetic value, or valley, and God wants that to change. God wants each of us to get up to the next level, whatever that is, wherever you are. He wants you to jump another level up. You may be resting, you may have taken a break for a little while. Maybe you've put your time in and you just don't feel like you have it anymore. I don't know. I tell you again, that's the devil's playground. God is looking today, looking in this church, looking in this church family for people of the Pentecost who will serve him by serving others and touching the community with a passion. My prayer time this morning is gonna be unique. Jason and the team are gonna come up and just play quietly in the background. But here's my prayer time today, folks. Here's my prayer time. I want you to focus your eyes on this. I want you to focus your eyes on this. This is what God wants us to become. This is what God wants the the people who visit this church to see and hear. So my prayer time with you this morning is, as you're focusing on that, I want you to ask God where you participate. What do you need to do what do you need the Holy Spirit to do in your life to connect? And we're going to do it in unique ways. We're going to pray, and you can pray silently. But just maybe you want to stand up and say, God, I need you because I want to be like that. I need your Holy Spirit to leave that eternal part of me, to expand himself, that eternal part of me, and explode into my physical being. See, that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's not a one-time event. The Bible says, keep on being filled. Keep on being, keep on letting the Holy Spirit take more and more control of who you are. So as we pray, ask yourself, Where am I when it comes to this? How is this going to impact my life? How is this going to impact my life? Because it's only as each of your lives are impacted, and mine, that we become that. Because that's just a word picture. So let's pray together. If you feel you want to say something to God, then I encourage you, speak out. Praise, prayer, encouragement, whatever. Let's pray. Help me, Holy Father, to be a living example. To be a passionate leader. To be filled constantly with your spirit. Create in me a humble heart, dear Jesus. That it's not about me, but may it be about you.